budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you Small art and 
beauty they're drudging spirits new yes it is bread we fight for but we fight for roses too toil where one reposes but a sharing of life's glories bread and roses bread and roses
talking about they don't wanna learn. Yet they're standing on the corner rolling blunts, talking about come on and burn. Y'all better get back to school. I got kids walking up and down the street, pants hanging down around their knees. What was pants talking about that they're looking for a job? When I see them get a book, I said, please. Talk to them. See, all they ever talk about, brag about who got the biggest and the baddest guns. Trying to see the cop with the rubber top. They drop the gun, they wanna run. Put them guns down. Now the sheriff got them locked up. <laughs> They're sitting in the county jail. It's a shame. I heard the mama, she was crying all night. She can't get no money for the bill. Come on. Now the man with the home run. Cause they didn't put no money in the commissary. Good morning, everybody. This is us. We're here at Labor and Love coming your way. It's Saturday morning, 10 a.m., in case you didn't know. <clears throat> Actually, it's past 10 now. <clears throat> and we're back on the air this week. After a couple weeks of rest and uh, last week's show, which was... Uh, Cut short. This week we're hot and ready to go. Labor news, opinion, history, commentary, you name it. By, for, and about working people. We started out that set emphasizing how eclectic our collection is. We started out with Bread and Roses. Okay, Bread and Roses, sung by Bobby McGee. Followed that up with Joni Mitchell singing her ballad, her folk ballad. Both sides now, ain't it the truth? And the last one we just played there was Bishop Bullwinkle. Hell no to the no now. Talking about people who claim one thing and live another. Can't do that. 
This is Labor and Love, and we're coming at you from 2781 21st Street here in the heart of the mission. Um, and the show is about the labor movement. It's about you, working people. about our movements, what's become of them. So what have we got for you today? Well, Labor History in Two Minutes, where we go back and we review three, three dates in labor history and their significance. Um, two Latinas who fought for social justice from our labor cards file. Emma Tenayuca and Luisa Moreno. We got Radio Labor, our World Labor Report. We've got a review of 2021. U.S. Labor on the March in 2021 after years of decline from The Guardian. We've got another chapter of Golden Land's Working Hands, Fred Glass's monumental history of the California labor movement. And we've got what happened and what were the top 10 stories, okay, in 2021. Anyway, that's what we got today. Hoping that you're here and you'll hang with us. Our background music today is Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, which I've been using the last few weeks. I think it sets a nice tone to talk about the things that we talk about on this show. Okay, let's play this one. This is a story of uh, what happened in 2018. Somewhere in the Midwest at a uh, an Amazon uh, dispersal center. Some people, uh, some people who were working at uh, this dispersal center were upset because of the way they were being talked to. Now, most of the workers there are Latino. Mexicans, um, and they went to the, they went to the, um, they went to the boss and they said, what's going on here? Okay, we, we, can you get rid of this guy? And the boss fired them. There were three people 
Um, and they were fired. So all of a sudden, all the workers, oh, here, walked off the job. All of a sudden, this is the kind of An entire Hispanic workforce decided to stop working for the day. They sent a couple of them home. They all packed they shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. Huh? Uh, oh, my mama. All that shit. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs, look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This is motherfucker dead ass quiet. This guy decided to make fun of another dude who is protesting BLM. No, no, don't touch the sign. I will not touch the sign. Touch the sign. Because Black the sign Lives Matter true. wants to get rid of Oreo cookies. No, those are black. No, they, the Oreo cookies, Nabisco, Ships Ahoy, all of it. They're going to take you straight to Bellevue. There'll be somebody there to give you medicine that you really need. Go, get into the get into the end. Hillary Clinton is working to try and take away your Oreo cookies. A toddler stole this guy's phone and landed a perfect left hook to the face. <laughs> This woman crashed her car into a building, almost killing a... Okay, well, we wanted to hear the part about the Hispanic workers. Um, let's see if we can find that. But otherwise, uh, what happened was the whole place were, you know, walked off the job in solidarity with their other... Uh, <laughs> Their other uh, co comrades, comrades. <clears throat> so, this is one that I just like to play. Let's listen. Thank you. 
Yeah, here we are. Here's the one that I wanted to play. This is the kind of power workers have if they only exercise it. Y'all got them fucked up. Come on. <laughs> they sent a couple of them home. They all packed their shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker. Huh? Uh, oh, my mama. All that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. They packed up. Yeah, I see. It's over. Them motherfuckers now packed up and dipped. They thought they was going to play with these amigos, and they said, oh, yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving. And they not bullshitting. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs. Look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me here geeked up. Oh, my Malcolm X shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. And they said, fuck you, we out. We not working no more today. Kiss my ass, nigga. I'll let y'all tomorrow. Oh, my mama. That's great. Look. Ain't nobody here. We're just cleaning up. We're going home. It's over, I'm right with the essays, nigga. Fuck it. Going to the crib. Going to the, going to the casa. Hasta la luego, mi muy bien. You swear to God. Okay, so that was a, a guy, a worker at um, a dispersal center in the Midwest, I believe in Indiana. And... The bosses of of the uh, <clears throat> factory had just fired three people who came and told them that they were being abused in in a racist way by one of the managers. So, what did the owners do? What did the managers do? They fired those three men, and the the job shut down. The workers shut down, and that's what this guy is uh, is talking about. Okay, so what was it like? What were the ten big labor shows of labor happenings? The most read labor stories of this past year. Number one, this is in, in these times, we are emptying out our shelves. Nabisco workers' five-week strike won by shutting down business as usual. A beaten-down workforce took on a powerful company and won. Number two, for the $10 billion it gave shareholders, John Deere could have given each worker $142,000. Workers made a fortune for shareholders over the last six-year contract. 
They should demand that they get paid their true worth before shareholders get a penny. Number three. As devastating plant shutdown looms in West Virginia, national outrage is hard to find. Number four. Columbia students wage the largest tuition strike in nearly 50 years. Number five, when these workers unionized, their cafe was put up for sale, so they bought it. In 10 months, baristas at White Electric, a coffee shop in Providence, went from unionizing their workplace to starting one of only a few dozen worker-owned cafes in the country. Number six, Capping off a year of labor action at Amazon, warehouse workers walk off the job in Illinois. At a major education company, McGraw-Hill, freelancers must now pay a fee in order to get paid. McGraw-Hill is clawing back 2.2% of every invoice and a worker says it feels like wage theft. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, you're not getting money that you used to get in your wages? Somebody's taking it. Not going to waste. Against loving your job. This was a, a really good thought-provoking article, and it talks about the kind of trap we as workers get stuck in. Uh needing a job but a job that steals your soul is just like slow suicide he's telling us uh, Sarah Jaffe is telling us that, that our real lives are something quite different from our jobs Okay, even if you have a good job that you enjoy, you still have to be there for eight hours. You still have to follow someone else's laws. We need a politics of time, a political understanding that our lives are ours to do with what we will. Dollar General workers stare down historic union vote. Vowing, we're going to fight. Dollar Central, a Connecticut dollar store. One of them, I think. One of the uh, Starbucks unionized. Unions and Democrats are sleeping in, are sleepwalking into the grave by not organizing in decimated post-industrial towns where seeding ground to the right wing. The labor movement has a game plan for the Biden era. Well, let's see it. One of them would be to pass the PRO Act, of course. A worldwide workers' revolt against Amazon has begun. More on that next week. This is something that is happening. Amazon workers from Italy to India are uniting to form a global movement that may have found Jeff Bezos... Achilles' heel, Mr. Bezos. 
and went to outer space because he could. No justice, no Italian beef. Workers at Portillo's food chain walk out on strike. A group of non-unionized workers at the Chicago-based chain staged a week-long walkout, part of a growing wave of strikes in the area. Okay, so those are the big stories. Um, what's going on around the world? Okay. Radio Labor coming right up. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, December 17th, 2021. I'm Mark Bolache. In the report this week, Labor and International Migrant Day, December 18th. The Kellogg Cereal Company fires 1,400 workers in the U.S. How unions around the world have been coping with COVID-19 and singing. Hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. This is Radio Labor. There are about 115 million migrant workers in the world. Their wages and working conditions have always been poor, but the pandemic has made things even worse. One of the major problems they face is wage theft. To publicize the plight of the workers, the Solidarity Center produced a podcast using Sri Lanka as an example. The center is the largest international labor rights organization in the United States. Its podcast is hosted by the center's executive director, Shauna Baderblau. Imagine working and not getting paid. I mean, many of us do have fun sometimes when we're at work, but we don't work for fun. We work to support ourselves and our families. But unbelievably, in the 21st century, for millions of people worldwide, especially those in low-wage work, and especially for people who migrate from their homes for jobs, it's shocking how often they work and don't get paid, paid on time, or even at all. Our guest today will describe a campaign across Asia that is raising awareness about the untold numbers of people who migrate for work but who are not paid and are forced to work long hours with no days off, all forms of wage theft. Michael Joy Kim speaks to us from Sri Lanka, where he is co-founder and director of the Plantation Rural Education and Development Organization, PREDO. Preto is part of the Justice for Wage Theft campaign formed by migrant rights organizations during the COVID crisis. Michael, in your experience working um, in Sri Lanka and across the region on the issue of migrant workers, I wonder if you could just share a little bit, like, what are some of the reasons people migrate? All the others go because there is less income for them. Many other migrant workers are either semi-skilled or unskilled workers. So they can't earn very much to build a house, to educate their children. And many of them also go to repay their loans locally so that they come out of that bondage of getting indebted. What constitutes wage theft? Wage theft is basically when the employer does not pay the wages agreed. Normally, a contract would include 
that amount and otherwise there would, would not be an official agreement. But what happens is when you go to a, the country, if the labor laws are not implemented properly, one is not paying the minimum wages. So someone is leaving a country either because they need to pay off debt and they can't make enough locally, or they're trying to improve their lives and livelihoods. They land in a country and work and either don't get paid the wages they're promised or owed, or in some cases don't get paid at all. I know that your organization, Predo, is working with the Justice for Wage Theft campaign, and that campaign began during the early months of COVID pandemic. Wage theft became a sort of a common phenomenon where they complained of various grievances before COVID-19. And out of the 1,700 cases, about 60 to 75% of them actually were wage theft. They were wow. complaining that they were not paid, they were uh, treated, they were promised they were paid later, they were not paid overtime. But then suddenly, after COVID-19, large number of people started complaining that they were not paid, they lost the employment, and it became a huge problem. To hear the full interview about migrant worker wage theft, visit SolidarityCenter.org. In the United States, 100,000 workers are on strike or have authorized strike actions to support their bargaining committees. The latest outrageous action by an employer came as the cereal producer Kellogg's announced that it is planning to replace 1,400 of its striking workers and bring in scabs. The workers are members of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union, the BCTGM. They have been on strike since October 5th, 2021. The main issue in the dispute is Kellogg's use of a two-tier employee system in which newly hired workers are not provided the same level of wages and benefits as longer-term employees. Liz Schuller is the president of the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the U.S. They think that they can start a two-tier system and sell out the next generation. Are we going to let that happen? That's right. Kellogg's is the classic story of taking a business that was run as a family and over time starting to put downward pressure on wages as corporate profits are going up. And they just enriched their CEO and then told their workforce that they can't have the health care that they used to have. They're going to institute a two-tier system where the younger next-generation workforce isn't going to be treated So these workers are saying no. Uh, They're drawing a line in the sand, and they're saying enough is enough. Here are some of the Kellogg workers, starting with Trevor Biddleman, the president of the local union at Kellogg's main plant in Battle Creek, Michigan. Boss makes a dollar, I made a dime. That was a poem from a simpler time. Now the boss makes a thousand and gives us a cent while he's got employees that can't pay their rent. So when the boss makes a million and the worker makes jack, that's when we strike and take our lives back. The worker exploitation that's been taking place by all of these corporations has to stop and it has to stop now. It's shameful to think that the company cannot take care of your health. 
will take care of you. When you have a two-tier system, it creates a lot of animosity. It's a way to pay all future employees less and less benefits. New people coming in, they want to pay them $13 an hour less. They don't want them to have a pension. They don't want them to have the full medical benefits. They want to take the benefits that I had away from these new guys. See, if somebody would have done that to me years ago, I would never had nothing. These guys would have had less. They take in their hundreds and millions of dollars of profit and they just cut bait and run. One day, these companies, they're going to realize they're doing wrong. Only CEO, they get more money, but the people who make all that profit, they don't get anything. They're trying to divide us. Labor unions all around the world have been struggling to confront the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on workplaces. To better understand how unions have been coping, the Workers' Activities Bureau of the ILO held an online conference with unionists from many countries. The ILO is the International Labor Organization. The Bureau operates under its French acronym ACTRAV. I talked to the director of ACTRAV, Maria Elena André, about the conference. I asked her to outline some of the effects the pandemic has had on the world of work. I think that there are a number of effects that we can talk about. Let me just select a few. I think that across the world we have seen a strong impact of COVID-19, in particular on the labor institutions. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, when we had the first lockdowns, we could see that those workers and employers were severely impacted by the restrictions, by the lockdown measures, and in, in many cases as well, some of those have become unemployment for many of the trade union members. So in, in some cases, we have seen a decline in the membership. But I would say we've also seen a certain willingness on the part of both employers and workers, I have to say, to try and find solutions in order to keep people's livelihoods, in order to keep people's lives which was so important, and in order to keep an economic activity, that would be important. The second thing that I think we have observed was in this attempt to find immediate solutions that would really maintain the livelihoods and the economic activity, at the same time protecting people's health, we've seen a lot of measures in the area of social protection, for instance, or in the areas of occupational safety and health. I mean, we know, all of us, that you need to protect the workers, all workers, independently from their employment status. But we know that in the reality, the world of work is different from that. And we also know that over the last few years, occupational safety and health measures were not on the top of the radar of the constituents of the ILO, with the exception of the decision, of course, uh, to recognize OSH um, as a fundamental principle and fight at work at our ILC in 2020 on the Future of Work Declaration. So the social protection and the OSH measures came up very, very importantly as a reply to the COVID-19. I mean, for instance, the frontliners, of course, which is not just people in the health, but it's also all those that have allowed for our economies to continue working, that have allowed us to continue eating, for instance, or that have allowed us to continue moving in terms of transport and all the rest, those measures were very important in that regard. In, in, in what we've done in ACTRAV and in the ILO, we have observed that in this period, there were 1,600 social protection measures that were put in place, not just for those that were not covered, but also those that were covered, but there were gaps. I think this is high, and it's very interesting to see how are we going to sustain this in the future. 
We've also seen that this is the third point uh, of the challenges, uh, uh, a growth in inequalities. Nothing new. Inequalities in the labor market, inequalities within uh, vulnerable groups, inequalities within and between countries were something that we were uh, already aware of, but we have seen that growing. And as I was saying, the most vulnerable ones were the ones that were under this heat uh, by, by the COVID-19 pandemic. We have young workers, we have women, we have migrant workers, we have workers in the informal economy, we have workers in the platform economy that were already vulnerable in terms of their protection, not just social protection, but also rights protection from a labor market perspective. And they've been very impacted. And I think it should be a source of concern for all of us to make sure that in moving forward, they will probably be the first ones that we look into more carefully. Now here is Robin Roberts with Hold That Line. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. We're standing here together, one for all and all for one, and we'll keep right on here standing till our victory we have won. We're united in our struggle, no, there's none us can divide. We'll yield nothing to the enemy, cause we've just a son our side. See now hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line, hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line against the bosses when they try to drive us back. Hold that line against the coppers and their armed baton attacks. Hold that line against the government, against all enemies of our class. Hold that line against the scabs to know we'll never let them pass. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line against the World Bank and against the IMF. Hold that line and keep on holding it as long as we have breath. Hold that line against their dogma. Hold that line against their creed. Hold that line to save the future from their plunder and their greed. Sing it now, hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Oh, we're standing with the millions reaching out across this world and with those who fought before us, our banners here unfurled. But there's more room yet beside us if you'll come and join our cause for the chains that now enslave you. It's like we lost 
the end of Radio Labor there. There was one that I wanted to play especially. I guess we'll have to get to it later. Um, from our Labor Cards Corner, I want to celebrate two Latinas who stood proud and tall in the labor movement, especially the labor movement here in California. One of them was named Emma Tenayuka. One of them was named Luisa Moreno. Um, Luisa Moreno was an organizer from Guatemala originally who moved to New York and was um, celebrated. She was radicalized one night when she saw some people uh, who were picketing about a cowboy movie cowboy movie and they said that this cowboy movie was presenting a negative uh, version of how Latin Latinos were Mexicans especially and at this demonstration the police attacked the crowd and beat up some of the organizers some of the demonstrators and Luisa Moreno uh, went to help one and saw, you know, this happening, police beating people on the head. She was at that time working in a garment factory. But after that, she changed her mind, changed her goals, and became a labor organizer. Emma Tenayuka is pretty much the same as a very young woman, as a 17-year-old high school student. She would go down to the part in San Antonio, Texas, where political speeches happen, where organizers talked. Okay, so here's the story. This is the way for these movements that came later. In 1950, Moreno faced deportation proceedings for her connections to the Communist Party. Let's start oh, back at the beginning. The way that I found out was to read it in the newspaper. And I saw this picture of a 21-year-old standing on the steps of City Hall with her fist in the air. And it described her as Emma Tanayuka Brooks, the charismatic leader of a movement. looking at a 2007 U.S. history textbook and uh, scanning to see all of the times that it talked about the labor movement and it seems there's very little mention of anybody who's not a white or um, a white immigrant in these big labor history moments and so a lot of times Latina and Latino activists are left out of this. Um, the one mention there was of Latino activism was with the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez is the only person mentioned in there. 
When history books mention the legacy of Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, they often leave out the Latinas, who also made great strides in the movement. In a nation that regularly fails to recognize the contributions of minority groups, it's not a big surprise that women like Dolores Huerta and Helen Chavez are left out of the story. But even before the still-powerful UFW came onto the scene, Latinas were shaping the labor landscape across the U.S. I think one of the most um, incredible and important figures in Latino civil rights and labor activism is a Guatemalan woman by the name of Risa Moreno. She is born in Guatemala in like 1907. She comes from a very privileged family. She's educated. She is a writer and a thinker. She's very intellectual. And then she decides to kind of forego her wealth and move to the United States. Uh, she moves to New York and settles in Harlem. Begins work as a seamstress. And she then starts organizing local Puerto Rican uh, women who are working in the garment industry. Moreno's work in labor activism only grew from there. In 1935, the American Federation of Labor recruited Moreno as a professional organizer. She's probably one of the first women and like one of the first Latinas to cross the boundaries into the, the American Federation of Labor. I think one of the things that's most exciting about Moreno, Luisa Moreno, is that she uh, was this excellent coalition builder and she travels all around the country doing this kind of organizing, traveling to organize cane workers in New Orleans, tuna packing workers in San Diego, and women in cigar factories of Florida. We think of the Latino labor movement as really starting to catalyze with the United Farm Workers, but she's out there doing this work 20 years earlier, which helped pave the way for these movements that came later. In 1950, Moreno faced deportation proceedings for her connections to the Communist Party. But before she left voluntarily, she said this at her hearing, they talk about deporting me, but they can never deport the people that I've worked with and with whom things were accomplished for the benefit of thousands of workers, things that can never be destroyed. At the end of the day, you can deport the ideas and the, and the support that she provided within the labor movement uh, in Latino history. Luisa Moreno's work spans several states, but a young Mexican-American woman named Emma Teneyuca made history right in her hometown. I wanted to tell you a story um, because you're with time. One of the things we came across was this little article in Time, the um, interviewer asked her some question like she was kind of a newlywed and they said you know how how is it working in your household you know you're going out doing all these organizing while well, her husband homer brooks was he was an organizer too and so she answers pertly i love my husband and i'm a good cook emma tenayuca was born and raised in san antonio texas during her high school years she uh, is aware of the inequality that Mexican-Americans face in uh, San Antonio. She looks at the neighborhood conditions that her and her family and her community are living in, right? Um, they're segregated, they're very working class, um, you know, they're living in substandard housing conditions. She also, you know, goes around her neighborhood and her community uh, to ask people what are the issues that affect you and your family? 
I think, you know, people think of her in terms of being very strong and, and very courageous, but I think people don't realize that she was so sensitive, she was so tender-hearted, compassionate, that she just could not stand to see human suffering. In 1938, uh, Emma Yuga kind of gets her big moment. Uh, 12,000 pecan shellers, um, who were mostly Mexican-American women in San Antonio, marched out of um, factories in San Antonio and went on strike. Something like 20% of the nation's pecans were shelled in San Antonio in the 1930s. And the conditions in the factories were awful. Um, they were poorly ventilated, so a lot of women were getting tuberculosis or other um, health issues. They were crowded. They didn't have a lot of bathrooms or other facilities that people needed. And they were paid really low wages, um, something like um, less than $2 a week. So they went on strike and they elected Emma Teneyuka unanimously as the leader of the strike. Um, she was incredibly fierce. Uh, she was known as La Capitana, or the captain of the strike. So this labor dispute goes on for about six weeks. She organized demonstrations. Um, lots of people were jailed during the strike. The strike ends and pecan shellers earn a wage increase. But then the um, companies begin um, buying more um, machines that eliminate the laborers. But I think this movement kind of grew from there as they started thinking bigger um, about civil rights and minimum wages and, and things bigger than just the pecan shelling strike. I think that learning about Ematenayuca not only, again, pushes uh, our understandings of Latino history and labor history to an earlier period, but she can serve as a model for inspiration uh, for our young kids. There was really no space for Latinx activists within the context of these movements. They had to create space for themselves, and that's something that I really aspire to do as well. Faith Flores was only 15 when she started making an app called Calor to help prevent heat stroke among farm workers. The app sends alerts to workers during dangerous heat conditions and connects them to emergency services when needed. I have roots in the Central Valley. I was raised there for the first 10 years of my life, and a lot of my family members were farm workers. So I felt a strong sense of kind of responsibility and obligation to go back home and to, you know, serve my community in the best way that I could. I definitely think um, Latinx people are underrepresented in our education system. I mean, our history classes really only cover like our Founding Fathers, Declaration of Independence, just a lot of white history. Oftentimes, Black and other students of color never see themselves reflected in history books. Learning the history of Emma Tenayuca uh, provides a window to see, like, this is what the power of the youth uh, can do. That was our uh, feature on Emma Tenayuka. And Luisa Moreno, and as well, talked about a young woman who has now got a, uh, made an app that can assure that farm workers are better served. I want to play... 
This one. This is a nurse's lullaby, it's called. See if we can get it up here. This is what happens when uh, just a patient and a night sh- and a night. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Polanyi. Picture this. You're in the hospital with COVID-19. Your family is not allowed to visit, and you are not sure you will live through the night. There's only you and a night shift nurse. Here from the Labor CD Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers, is a nurse's lullaby. Lullaby was written by Timothy Sheard and sung by Tracy Garrison Feinberg and Jacob Gould. Okay, that was a nurse's lullaby. And, uh, It's from a group of songs called Stories to Change the World. Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers. These are the people who are standing uh, between us and 
dying. Play this one. The earth was lush and green. The rains were soft and clean. The rivers ran free down to the sea when nature.
Botham, Jean, Aura, Rosser, Stefan, Clark. Okay, that was some a set of three songs from an album entitled Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers. Um, songs that honor the people who are on the front lines now in the pandemic. They turned uh, Amazing Grace into a, a catalog of young African-American people who have been Latinos who have been murdered by police. Before that was the evening star, a, play, a plea to heal Mother Earth. And the first one off that set was a nurse's lullaby. Beautiful song about a nurse sitting up with someone who's on their deathbed with the COVID. Okay, so got a special one to play. This is the war prayer now. A war prayer, when we look at all the false things, all the uh, BS that's foisted on us as working people, certainly one of the very worst tricks that's played on us is war. In war, we're we're preached to, we're convinced to go and fight against someone who's probably a lot more like us than the people who are sending. 
and you end up out in some strange land with a gun and a target on your back. So it's either kill or be killed. Uh, Mr. Mark Twain in the 1890s sort of got much more militant. He became active in the movement to stop the war on the Philippines and the taking over of Hawaii right at the end of the 1890s. And when the nation was gingered up for the Spanish-American War, Twain wrote this, the war prayer. What does it really mean when you go to war? It was a time of great and exalting excitement. The country was up in arms. The war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily, the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms. The proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly, the packed mass meetings listened, panting to patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches, the pastors preached devotion to flag and country and invoked the God of battles, beseeching his aid in our good cause in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. God Almighty. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness, straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake, they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day, the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams, visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then, home from the war, bronzed heroes, welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy, and envied by the neighbors and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor, there to win for the flag, or failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building and with one impulse, the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts and poured out that tremendous invocation. God, the all-terrible, 
thou who ordainest. Thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work, bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset, help them to crush the foe, grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side and stood there, waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal. Grant us the victory, O Lord, our God, Father and protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments, he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes, in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The words smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it. If such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. 
Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this. Keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware. Lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it. By that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop. Which may not need rain. And can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer. The uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it. That part which the pastor and also you in your hearts fervently prayed silently and ignorantly and unthinkingly. God grant that it was so. You heard these words, grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O oh Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them, with them in spirit. We also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O oh Lord our God, help us to tear their souls to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriarch dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Turn them out, ruthless with little children, to wander unfriended, the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst, sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it. For our sakes, who adore thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, 
stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love of him who is the source of love and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. Ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. was no sense in what he said. They thought he was a lunatic. Only dead men can tell the truth in this world, wrote Mark Twain. Yeah, that was a moving one. The minister was Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Peter Coyote narrated it. Very nice presentation. I'm on the Road by Utah Phillips and Annie DeFranco. We are delighted tonight to have Mr. Hal Holbrook, an Emmy and Tony award-winning actor who's one of the great craftsmen of stage and screen, best known for his performance as Mark Twain, well, for which you won a Tony and the first of his 10 Emmy award nominations. Please Jack welcome Mr. Hal alive. Holbrook. The oldest of the old. Jack settled out off of the train for a great tramp. He got scared. He always told me if I get afraid to walk into a railroad yard, a makeup yard, it'll be time to quit. He used to carry a spike ball handle in his bindle, his bedroll, balloon, he called it, uh, to fend off the ne'er-do-wells. But you know the way it's gotten to be on the skids now? Young, mean drunks and drug money. And so they prey off the old poor. Uh, down under the railroad bridges. And so they tend to settle out and stay in one place where they feel safe, you see. He feels safe in this bar over in Albany, Oregon. If you want to find Frying Pan Jack, that's where you look for him. 
We shared a camp down there in Oroville at the foot of the Feather River Canyon coming out of Keddy on the Western Pacific. Keddy, up at the top of the canyon, still has a wooden water tower. It's never been torn down and you can camp under it. Anybody ever been there? Up in the high Sierra? Well, it's beautiful. Jack and I were in that camp. That's where he said to me, you know, he'd been tramping since 1927. He said, I told myself in 27, if I cannot dictate the conditions of my labor, I will henceforth cease to work. <laughs> you don't have to go to college to figure these things out, no sir. He said, I learned when I was young that the only true life I have is the life of my brain. But if it's true, the only real life I have is the life of my brain. What sense does it make to hand that brain to somebody for eight hours a day for their particular use on the presumption that at the end of the day, they will give it back in an unmutilated condition? <laughs> Fat chance. So he built that big Montana bedroll, started piping the stem, panhandling, you know, head full of words and songs. He didn't write songs and poems. He found them and scattered them abroad. Uh, for people like me to find and put to work again. He was old enough to remember the sway rods under the boxcars, riding the rods. Right band Jack, the two bums. The bum on the rods is hunted down as an enemy of mankind. The other is driven around to his club as fetid, wined and dined. And they who curse the bum on the rods as the essence of all that's bad will greet the other with a winning smile and extend the hand so glad. The bum on the rods is a social flea who gets an occasional bite. The bum on the plush is a social leech, blood-sucking day and night. The bum on the rods is a load so light that his weight we scarcely feel. But it takes the labor of dozens of folks to furnish the other a meal. As long as we sanction the bum on the plush, the other will always be there. But rid ourselves of the bum on the plush and the other will disappear. Then make an intelligent, organized kick. Get rid of the wasted crush. Don't worry about the bum on the rods. Get rid of the bum on the plush. And now, uh, as promised, chapter one of Fred Glass's Golden Lands Working Hands. Chapter one, No Danger from Strikes Among Them, the Early California Labor Movement. In the 1860s, Charles Crocker hires 12,000 Chinese laborers to build the Central Pacific Railroad. They laid tracks east from Sacramento in a race to meet the Union Pacific with its Irish workforce coming west. Crocker is glad to be able to pay the Chinese workers less money than he pays whites. Better still, he boasts there is no danger from strikes among them. The work, however, is dangerous. 
primitive explosives take many lives. In one particularly frightening job, workers are lowered over cliffs in baskets. High above the ground, they plant dynamite, light the fuse, and hope they're lifted back to the top of the cliff before they're blown to bits. In the winter of 1866, record snows fall in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Rather than call a halt until better conditions return, Crocker orders the work to continue in tunnels 50 feet beneath the surface. His assistant tells Congress, The snow slides carried away our camps and we lost a good many men in those slides. Many of them we did not find until the next season when the snow melted. That spring, 5,000 Chinese workers go on strike. They want eight-hour days and to be paid the same as white workers. Crocker considers importing black strike breakers from the east, but he figures out an easier solution. He surrounds the camps with armed guards. I stopped the provisions on them, he brags. <laughs> Starving, they go back to work. The Transcontinental Railroad is completed in 1869. Before this picture is taken, Chinese workers are told to move aside. Then they are discharged. Some join the state's growing army of farm laborers. Thousands more drift to San Francisco, where they encounter another group of immigrants. Irish workers flocked to California after the gold rush, seeking escape from prejudice and stalled opportunities on the East Coast. They become the largest group of white immigrants in San Francisco and provide much of the muscle in constructing the new city. Not many jobs are open to women, who as late as 1860 are outnumbered in the general population by men nearly six to one. Most find work as domestics. Kate Kennedy follows another path. In the new San Francisco public schools, 57 of the 72 teachers are women. Some of the Irish transplants rise to prominence in the city's young labor movement. Alexander Kennedy, a printer, helps form the San Francisco Trades Union in 1863, the first council of unions in California. Kennedy becomes its president, starts up a labor newspaper, and leads a growing movement for a standard eight-hour workday. The need is clear. People are working 11 or 12 hours per day, six days a week. There's no such thing as a weekend. For bakers who work 14 hours, seven days per week, there is just work. In 1867, thousands of workers strike and demonstrate for an eight-hour day. By the following year, with a strong economy and after continuous pressure by unions, the legislature passes the first statewide eight-hour law in the country. It is celebrated with a huge nighttime parade in San Francisco. This moment of strength for the new trade union movement does not last long. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad floods the state with cheap goods from back east, ruining California businesses. A severe National Depression sends workers west. The eight-hour day is lost due to the number of hungry workers willing to work 10 or more. Things look mighty blue at present. 
no money, rent due, coal nearly out, little food in the house, and worst of all, no prospects ahead, either to pay what is due or to replace what is nearly out. In cigar making and garment production, shoe and boot making, Chinese and Irish workers compete directly for scarce jobs. White workers fault the Chinese for falling wages and exclude Chinese workers from their unions. They create labels to paste on their products calling for boycotts of Chinese-made goods and urge people to buy union-made products instead. Chinese become afraid to venture out of the Chinatown ghetto for fear of racist violence. In response to the conflict, Congress holds hearings in 1876 in San Francisco to investigate the impact of Chinese immigration on the economy. I am in favor of anybody making a living that possibly can. But I am a married man and have a family of four little children suffering here. Years ago, I could average $20 a week. My average wages for the last week is $14.89. I put in 14 hours a day. If a Chinaman has a mind to work for my firm, he gets employment and I have to compete with him. He offers to work for about one-third less the price I am working for now. In July of 1877, hundreds of thousands of railroad workers around the country go on strike, protesting wage cuts below subsistence level. A war breaks out. On one side, the railroads, assisted by police and National Guard. On the other, railroad workers, their families and communities, fed up with the power and arrogance of the railroad companies. Hundreds of workers are killed. The corporations sustain millions of dollars in damages. In San Francisco, socialists call a meeting in solidarity with railroad workers in front of the unfinished city hall. 8,000 people peacefully hear speakers denounce the greedy railroad owners and call for an eight-hour day. But toward the end of the rally, an anti-Chinese group leads part of the crowd away, crying, On to Chinatown! This begins a three-day riot. One newspaper considers the events so extraordinary, its editor does something unheard of. He allows the words of a Chinese man to enter a news story. I was employed in Seasau's laundry. On Tuesday night, about half past 10 o'clock, two Chinese boys who had been visiting the shop started out and saw a crowd of 15 or 20 white men approaching. The Chinese boys ran back and gave the alarm. The front door was locked and we Chinamen started out the back door when we came upon two white men who had coal oil cans in their hands. They ordered us back into the house. We then attempted to escape by the front door and were fired upon with pistols by the crowd in the street. There were about 15 white men there and more than 10 shots were fired. I did not see the deceased at the time. The rest of us ran away and hid in the bushes. We heard the white man breaking open boxes. The proprietor's chest in which he kept his money was in the house. In about half an hour after we escaped, we saw the house on fire. Governor William Irwin blames the violence on hoodlums, thieves, and communists. Although the riots end after three days, their underlying causes remain. Unemployment is high, wages low. 
San Francisco's immigrant workers see a stark contrast between their deteriorating condition and the huge fortunes of a few capitalists, such as Charles Crocker, owner of this mansion. The house gains notoriety when a small businessman who owns a little home adjacent to Crocker's refuses to sell his lot so that Crocker can expand his palace. Enraged, the capitalist orders his workmen to build a 40-foot-high fence on three sides of the little lot. This becomes known as Crocker's spite fence. Ten weeks after the riots, the Workingmen's Party of California is formed. Its members are drawn from the ranks of immigrant workers as well as small business people fearing economic ruin. The party program calls for an eight-hour day, public works to employ the unemployed, taxing the rich, controlling the railroads, and free public education for all. It also calls for deportation of Chinese workers. Oh, California's coming down, as you can plainly see. They're hiring all the Chinamen and discharging you and me. There were long processions at night with big torchlights and lanterns carrying the slogan, the Chinese must go, and mass meetings where fiery tongues flayed the Chinese bogey. Dennis Kearney, an Irish immigrant and businessman wannabe, shoots to overnight fame with his rude but effective speeches in San Francisco sandlots. At a rally held on wealthy Knob Hill across the street from Crocker's spite fence, Kearney tells the workingmen's crowd, I will give the Central Pacific just three months to discharge their Chinamen. And if that is not done, Stanford and his crowd will have to take the consequences. When the Chinese question is settled, we can discuss whether it would be better to hang, shoot, or cut the capitalists to pieces. But not all party leaders are as racist or inflammatory as Kearney. I am not an advocate for the importation of the Chinamen here in droves, but I believe in the brotherhood of man. And I cannot believe that we have any right to exclude one race of people for the sake of building up another. Frank Roney is an iron molder and an exiled Irish revolutionary. For a time, he rivals Kearney in the workingmen's leadership. He and his followers want to steer the party toward trade union organization. For Roney, the anti-Chinese program of the party is brutal and such as no self-respecting people would dream of imposing upon the members of any race within their midst. The only objection to them that I felt had any validity was that they were cheap workers. The Workingmen's Party spreads throughout California. It elects dozens of officials to public office. In 1878, more than a third of the delegates elected to the state constitutional convention are from the Workingmen. But Roney, who by this time has been forced out of the party's leadership by Kearney, is not impressed by the party's participation in the convention. The majority of the working men's delegates studied fundamental law and what was best for their constituents in nearby saloons and played cards with a nourishing glass of foam-topped beer. Within a few years, the party collapses. Its major legacy is organized race hatred, bearing bitter fruit in the federal anti-Chinese exclusion act of 1882. Even after the end of Chinese immigration, White workers continue to blame Chinese workers each time the economy dives. Although Anna Smith asks, Why is the condition of working people in the East, where there are no Chinamen, worse than it is here? Years later, Frank Roney recalled, 
I took as active a part as I could to make the party as robust and as progressive as the times and circumstances permitted. It was essentially an anti-Chinese party. However, I never warmed to that feature of the agitation. Instead, after leaving the party, Roney seeks to expand working-class power by coordinating union efforts. His new organization, the Trades Assembly, stabilizes the city's labor movement. With it, workers carry their vision of the eight-hour day into the next decade. It's a mighty hard road that our poor hand has hold, and our poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. As early as 1871, when most Americans lived on farms, economist Henry George wrote, The land of California is already to a great extent monopolized by a few individuals who hold thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres apiece. Over our ill-kept, shadeless, dusty roads, which run frequently for miles through the same man's land, plod the tramps, with blankets on back, the laborers of the California farmer, looking for work in its seasons. Author Jack London worked as a farm laborer. He asks, If there were constant work at good wages for every man, who would harvest the crops? The growers have their answer. Immigrants. If they can't squeeze large enough profits out of the native-born workers, they'll import workers who can be squeezed. Along the edge of your cities, you'll see us, and then we have come with the dust, and we're gone with the wind. Come on down. That was uh, chapter one of Fred Glass's History of California Labor Movement, starting out with the gold rush and uh, up to the early 1900s. No mention, of course, in uh, this film of Native American labor. Native American labor you can read more about in a book also published by CFT called Mission Labor. And the whole approach to work was different. Uh, In the missions, natives were basically, you know, uh, slaves. Okay, call it enforced labor. The... Missions were basically death camps for a lot of Native people. Um, Big majority of children born in the missions never made it to five years old. We're talking about 60-70%. At any rate, this was Fred Glass's... um, Golden Lands Working Hands, and we'll play part two next week. If I'm to have the uh, pleasure of your company. I just saw Scott O'Walker walk in with his flat black plastic show coming right up.
This is the bee reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Have a good week and good work. Stay safe, wear a mask, and honor your fellow people. Next week, more more of Golden Land's working hands. This is the bee signing off. FM, it's a great place to listen to crazy things. Let's watch Michael I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, L W F L M O Y T. L W A F L M O Y T. That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent, five percent. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch full-length full movies. Oh, wait, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, yeah. See you next month. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. Any record.
record that's Braille. I got one. Hey, Mutineer near Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Since 1971, the San Francisco Tenants Union has been fighting for the rights of tenants and for the preservation of affordable housing in San Francisco. Starting from the struggle for rent control in the 1970s, the Tenants Union has been the city's leading advocate for tenants. The Tenants Union is supported by membership and counseling donations, and this enables advocacy to be uncompromising and not influenced by pressures from government or other funders. It is a 501c4 since it campaigns for political candidates, so generally donations are not tax deductible, although large donations may qualify. Please visit WFTU.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Black, black plastic. Mutiny Radio. The ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out ACLUNC.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Alex, Ed, can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good. Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be... Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. 
from time to time. I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders.